All right, family. Wow, what a beautiful long parasha, right? But full of wealth of information today. Want to open up first and foremost that this parasha Noah, the opening, and I want to open up with this quick opening here of a New Testament scripture. And that is John chapter 3. In the Gospel, the Bezorah of Yohanan, John chapter 3, Yeshua is talking with Nicodemus. He says to Nicodemus, As surely I say to you, that unless one is born again, one cannot see the kingdom of God. And as a matter of fact, he was so marveled that Nicodemus could not understand what he was saying. He said, you are a great teacher in Israel, and you don't understand this? I will submit to you that John chapter 3 and what Yeshua was connecting, what he was trying to basically convey to Nicodemus, tracks back to this right here, this parasha. That's why he was so marvel that you there, how can you not know that what is this concept of being born again? The concept of being born again, first of all, who, how many of you believe you've been born again? Right? You believe you've been born again? Good. Now, you know, now all of you are afraid to answer a question around here. I noticed that. I remember when I first asked a question, everybody's hands were right now. Progressively, it's just getting lower and lower. But the reality is that we need to understand the concept of being born again. I mean, we talk and there's nothing wrong talking about it because it does say it. And let's not let bad doctrine flush everything down the toilet either. So this concept of being born again, we're going to see it here in the Parsha Noach. Remember, he told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. How many of you want to see the kingdom of God? How many of you actually believe and know, rather, I don't know if you know this, that you don't have to wait until you die to see the kingdom of God? See, the kingdom, Yeshua said, it's here. It's here. Today. Because when he says, in order to see the kingdom, see, by the way, in Hebrew, or let's think Hebraically speaking, to see is re'eh, which means to not just see, but to experience it. So one can experience the kingdom of God even here today. How? Through the parasha of Noah. We're going to see how. So first and foremost, let's start with last week's parasha. Ended with what? Genesis chapter 6, 5 and 6 says, Hashem saw that the wickedness of man was so great in the earth, it says, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Don't tell me that the world has gotten worse. There's no such thing, folks. The evil is still the same. Now, right off the bat from last week's parasha, it said that he saw that the wickedness of man was so great in the earth. Is that true today? We are way working our way there. It's not quite there yet, believe it or not. Because if it was there, we wouldn't be standing here right now. So we're working our way there. We sure are working our way in this. But let's look what it says. And then it says, And Hashem regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So that Hashem, right off the bat, I got to start with this before we enter into the genealogy of Noah. Because up to this point in history, we see something very prophetic. 
God creates man. We just went through Bereshit, right? God creates perfection. Something happened in perfection. Then God created man perfect, by the way. Adam was created as a Zadik, I said. As a matter of fact, the sages of Israel said that Adam was even circumcised already. He was born that way. He was a Zadik. Everything was perfect. And then we see the fall of men. Right? It's a couple things in here that I want you to realize that Genesis is teaching us. How do we deal with the problem of sin in the world? Because there's an issue here. And we're going to see this very, very prophetically. It started with Hasatan. Right? Hasatan rebelling in the heavens. That, brought, that got brought into our reality here, into this dimension, into the world. Right? And now, here's the aftermath. Genesis chapter 6. It says that all humanity now. <laughs> I mean, it's not just Adam. It's all humanity now. It's an issue. Everything that God had created has been defiled. Well, can we say the same thing about his word? His word is still perfect, folks. Don't blame bad doctrine. Don't blame it on his word. His word is still perfect. It's the bad doctrine. So now we see that there's kind of like a cancer going on in the world. Right? And, you know, I think the New Testament gives us answer. You know, that from one man stands sin, now all the generations down the road, it's going to be what? They're going to be born into sin. So it says that he regretted, though, that he made man. Is that true? I mean, what do we do with a verse like that? He regretted to make man. So if he regretted to make men, that means that how can he be perfect and just? Because if we regret to make something, that means that you kind of messed up then. Or you're admitting to messed up. So let's see this in Hebrew. In Hebrew it says, Vayinachem Yehovah ki asa et ha'adam ba'eretz, it says. Far away from what the English translation says. He did not regret to make men because it opens up by saying, Vayinachem. Do you know that that word, Vayinachem, is the same root for this portion that we're getting into today? Nocha. Look at this. Vayinachem is the Hebrew word nacham, which it's not so much to be sorry as in I regret it, but look, to be moved to pity, to have compassion, to feel sorry. In other words, when he looked at humanity, he didn't say, Hi, Ben Baruch. <laughs> he didn't say that. But rather, he saw he had compassion. He felt sorry for humanity. It's to have pity. Wow. Which now, because of the Vayinachem, it grieved them in his heart because what he loved so much was suffering. You ever have somebody that you love so much and you see them suffer? It's like, wow. Man, I wish I can go in there and be a superhero. Right? Well, that's not exactly how the Father saw us. Now we see something very amazing because he says, because I feel sorry because I have compassion for you. Remember, remember, remember last week's parasha in the word Bereshit. What does it reveal? That the son of God will be crucified on the cross. So he already had a plan in Max. He already had something planned. But now the heavenly father is going to reveal the one from Bereshit, 
the one who's going to be crucified, he's going to reveal this now through a man. Very, very amazing. Because Noah, believe it or not, was a Messiah to his people back then. Not the Messiah. Understand the difference between Hamashiach and Mashiach. He was a Messiah, a type of a Messiah to his people. Why? We're going to see. So in light of this right now, that we see that all creation is corrupt and every intention of man is just wicked. How do we fix it? Now comes the story of Noah. Notice the, the, the where and how is this progressing. Now we come into Bereshit 6, 9 says, this is the genealogy of Noah, right? You would think that immediately when it says this is the genealogy of Noah, that it will say, it will mention his kids. But notice that in the Torah, it doesn't mention his kids. If you look everywhere in the Torah, when it says this is the lineage of, you notice that immediately it starts listing his offspring. But here, it says this is the genealogy of Noah. Okay. What does it say after? Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with Elohim. Okay, where's this genealogy? It should have said, okay, Shem, right? It should have said something, a name, but it doesn't say a name. You wonder why? Because this has nothing to do with the offspring. We're going to see what our greatest sages teach regarding this. Look, in Hebrew, literally the way this reads, it says, Elech toldot nocha nocha itzadik. It opens up by saying, Elech toldot. This word with the Elech, it makes the separation to understand that he's not talking about a genealogy, but something more deeper in the connection with the wording here in Hebrew. So what is Noah? I'm going to get into the Elech here in a minute, but it says Elech toldot Noah Noah. What is Noah? It literally means to rest. But look, more prophetically speaking, okay, Hirsch says there is a movement towards a goal. Noah means also a movement towards a goal that has to come to a rest. More specifically, in other words, we are working, right, towards a goal to what? Noha, rest. Humanity is working right now towards a goal to rest, or at least a good portion of us is. This is very important as we coming into it because Hirsch says that this is now is the direction that we're going. He chose one man, Noah. Interesting enough. And why does it say this? A movement towards a rest? Why does it say a movement towards a rest? Because if we go back in the Torah, look what it says. In Genesis 5.28, look what it says. When Lamecha lived 182 years, he fathered his son. And call his name Noah. Now this is his father. And he called Noah. That he called him Noah. This is today's parashah. But why? Saying out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief. Yeh Nachem it says in Hebrew. 
will bring us a relief from the toil of our hands. Do you realize that the father already in there of Noah was prophesying of the Mashiach? How is it that Noah is going to bring relief from the toil of man's hands? Look, it says he's going to bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. I will submit to you today that most of you here under this ohel can really appreciate this verse. You off-gritters, right? The toil of our hands is like, wow, man, this hurts. You know, in the city, you just press a button. And here you have to do all kinds of things just to achieve one button in the city. You know, you want heater, you press the button. And here you have to go chase wood down, cut it, process it, do all this kind of good stuff. Ay, ay, ay. You know, the toil of our hands. We want to eat. For most of you who are off gridding, you have to go out there, collect wood, right? Prepare. For some of you, you have to kill your own chicken, right? It's a lot of work. This is the toil of the labor of our fruits that we have to do every single day to survive. He says a day is going to come that Noah, you, are going to bring relief to all mankind. Look. Hershumar says this. The words Elech Toldor Noha says this. Introduce a new series of developments in the history of mankind. Something very prophetic is happening in here. Up to this point, there's been creation, downfall, and now we can, uh, we can safely say that Hashem is going to recreate the world. A couple things are happening in here. Hashem is going to show us a lesson. So many, so many insights on this, but just, just off the top of my head, he's trying to teach us that even if he wipes out every evil man in the world, we will always have evil because evil needs to be dealt with. And here, all of them got wiped completely. All but eight. Okay? Yet, there's still a problem. Why are we still in the same scenario again? You see this? So let's look. Mankind is about to perish. Noah, as a second Adam, <laughs> What is Yeshua known in the Brich Hadashah? As the Adam, the second Adam. <laughs> this terminology is very, very messianic from a Jewish perspective. It says, as the second Adam is to stand at the head of new mankind. What do we need for our problem to deal with our issues today? We do need the second Adam. You understanding this? But it's more than just the second Adam. It's what comes after the second Adam. It's what we're failing today. I think we all agree with the second Adam. We're just not understanding what does that look like and how does it play out in our everyday life. Let me show you. So it says in here that he is the second Adam. He is to stand at the head of new mankind. Noach. Okay. It's not immediately followed by the enumeration of Noach's children. Notice that Hirsch even says that. Which is very interesting because it says this is the, the generation. But then it doesn't mention I even one son. Not until later. But look, it's not about the children of Noah. Rather, scripture appears to be saying that he himself was the first toldot, the first generation. 
he himself was the first generation what do i mean by that let's continue on look our sages in bereshit rabbah okay says this infer from this that the primary product of a person the first year of his labors is his own character it starts with you you can be a new generation for your children look this all connects we're going to make all this connection keep me here because i'm my mind is going 100 miles per hour right now and i can't do that with you but understand this that it starts with noah and what does they mean when they what what is the what is the, the the sages are talking about when it starts with noah this inference applies especially to noah into his era for in his generation supreme courage was required to save oneself from the general degeneracy and to preserve the purity of one's heart the generation that he lived was so wicked that it took a special courage for noah to literally be a new toldot a new generation yeah wow isn't that kind of like what's happening today? I mean, when we look around the world, what do we see? Wickedness everywhere. You have your neighbors left, your neighbors to the right. Fortunate for us, our neighbors are good neighbors. But that's not the case for everybody. Our children are exposed to going to the schools, and what do they learn? Lawlessness. You see, I believe that we are very close to Noah's day. So what can we glean from this parasha so far? Well, first and foremost, one of the things that we need to look at, look in this parasha that our greatest sages are sharing us, that there's a way to make a difference, number one. Anybody who says it is hopeless, folks, is not operating in the spirit of God. Because even in those days, as hopeless as they was, there was one toldot, one generation, and that is Noah. One who said, I will not follow the dictates of the world. Look, look what he says in here. In such a generation, surely the first and foremost products of the righteous are their good deeds. In other words, this is why it says, this is the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He's giving you the answer. What is the first generation? It has to do with your deeds that you yourself are walking on every day. It has to do with what you submit to every day. It has to do your halakha in Hebrew, your walk with God every day. Look. Look. Or Chaim shares, uh, actually expounds more on the double Noah, Noah. You say, I saw this, look. In Hebrew, there's no comma, by the way. See, we see this in English, there's a comma, but there's no comma in Hebrew. It literally says, Noha, Noha. Is it stuttering? Is the Holy Spirit stuttering through people? No. There's a meaning for all these things. What did they mean by Noha, Noha? When the Torah uses the term, look what Or Chaim says, these, which is elech, right? It usually intends to exclude something. 
In other words, when it opened up by saying these are the generation of Noah, it's saying that it's excluding something else. It's very specific. What is it saying? These generations are not any others. In this instance, there was no need for the Torah to use the term these, as we already known that all the generations were doomed. For this reason, the sages understand the word to teach us that the principal generation is, or i.e., descendants of a person are man's good deeds. Now, does it make sense, doesn't it? How is it that good deeds are a generation? Because it starts with the good deeds that you transfer into your fruit, your next generation, literally. It starts with what you're imparting to your families here today now. Look. They therefore read the verse as if there were no coma between the words noha noha to indicate that Noah's descendants were his good deeds at the end of the day. This is amazing because this, <laughs> wow, if you really think about it, how do we change the outcome of our generation? Where well, it starts with one C, right? You have to have a good seed to start planting and harvesting good fruit. So it starts with one good seed. The seed in the scriptures alluded to the good deeds. Okay, where does it start then? Well, it starts with you. Because aren't you the head of the household? For most of us in here, we're heads of households, right? It starts with us. My God, is it just me or it's just hot in here? Good Lordy, have mercy. Somebody do something, please. Good Lord, open a window. No, 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 just open that door a little bit. You know, I don't want everybody to fall asleep, including myself while I'm teaching, right? Jerusalem Targum says something very prophetic. Look, it says in the parasha, it says, Noah walked with God, right? What does that mean, that Noah walked with God? Noah walked in the fear of the Lord, to be specific, what is the fear of the Lord? Psalms 111.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do what? His commandments. Don't over-spiritualize scripture, family. When uh, the scripture says that Noah walked with God, it means that he was obedient to his Torah. Simply put. You don't know how many times I heard different opinions of this or what it means. But none of it matches. You want to know why? Because if you remove the Torah, you remove wisdom from the word. So it says that the fear of the Lord right here gives you the answer is doing his commandments. His praise endures forever. Midrash Tanhuma says this in Noah 2.1. It says, Rabbi Tanhuma, the son of Abba, began the discussion of this subject with the verse, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Now, where I'm going with this, folks, because before we get into the ark, I need you to understand what is required and to make the connection in here with the Messiah. Look, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that is wise when it sows. Now, I want you to understand one thing, that how do we win souls? Do you know? That when you win a soul, scripturally speaking, that is as if that is your descendant, your generation. It doesn't have to necessarily be 
a literal descendant. Look. Rabbi Judah the Levite said, whenever a man dies, look at this, I love this. Whenever a man dies childless, he grieves and weeps. Is that true? More often, yeah. If someone dies without no children, it's not necessarily a good thing. Thereupon the Holy One, blessed be he, consoles him with the words. Wherefore do you weep over having left no fruit in this world? And look how he answers. You have left fruit that is more desirable than children, he says. The sovereign of the universe, the man asks, what fruit did I produce? He asks him. The Holy One, blessed be he, replies, the Torah you observed, concerning which it is written, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Look, the verse does not say that children are a tree of life, but that the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. What, you see, what Tanhumar is saying in here connects with the opening of this parasha. What Noah left behind was his deeds, the good deeds. His deeds or the deeds of the Heavenly Father? The deeds of the Heavenly Father. The Torah is called a tree of life. Hence, the fruit of the righteous, the fruit of the righteous is the Torah that man preserves and perpetuates. Wow. What you are leaving from here on out, folks, even if you don't have children, if you are imparting the Torah to people out there and you are bringing people into the covenant Hashem, they are as if they are your descendants. This is amazing. Now, this doesn't make sense, does it? for our minds but Hashem is not interested whether it makes sense for you or not he wants you to understand it and w live it every day look accordingly men's most desirable offspring are his good works hence it is written these are the offspring of Noah look what they say he connects it right there Noah was a Noah was in his generations a man righteous and wholehearted when it says these are the generations, immediately goes on to saying and describing Noah's righteousness. Understand that. Because why? Remember, let's put it in context. Hashem is about to destroy the entire world. But yet he's preserving one. One seed. And through this seed, why did he chose this seed? Because it says that he walked with him. He feared him. Now I want you to uh, recap real quick in here though so far is that the context in here it is a time of oppression why it's a time of oppression because it says that the wickedness of man was so great and uh, it was so so in abundance okay that even when Noah started to build the ark he was being persecuted for that Hazal even goes on to saying that this was a time of oppression you can say now we're going to see that <laughs> wow this ark, when he's going to build it, in every situation in history, there's always oppression. And we're going to see how that is going to be encouraging words for each and one of us. In the Zohar, it says this, Rabbi Hiyah open. Your people, all of them righteous, will inherit the land forever. He's quoting out Isaiah 60, 21. Happy are Israel who engage in Torah and know her ways. For on account of her, they will attain the world that is coming. Come and see. All of Israel have a share in the world that is coming. Why? 
because they uphold the covenant upon which the world was erected. You understand this? That when you follow Torah, folks, you are following not just a system of religious rules. You are following something that the very foundations of this world was created on. And it is what it holds the world right now from falling apart. Look, as it is said, were it not for my covenant day and night, I will not have established the laws of heaven and earth. Jeremiah 33, 25. So Israel, he says in the Sohar, who embrace the covenant and uphold it, have a share in the world that is coming. Now, there's a reason why the Zohar brings this whole thing up with the world to come. Because there's a connection with the world to come and the ark. And we're going to see this. It's really, really beautiful. A major connection with the world to come, the ark, and Yeshua. And guess what? Toldot, you, the generation. Look, moreover, they are therefore called righteous. From here, we learn that anyone upholding this covenant, right, upon which the world is erected, is called righteous. Now, listen to what the Zohar said. This is very interesting. How do we know this, though? They ask. From Joseph, they say. This is going to get really good. They're saying that this covenant. That was built on the foundation of the earth. They say it's connected to Joseph. See we need to understand the sages of Israel. So we can really make the connections. Look. Because. Why Joseph they ask. Because. He upheld the covenant of the world. He attained the title. Righteous. Now I want to share this. From Joseph. Because this is very interesting. Because they say that it's from Joseph. This is the, this is the, the yesot, if you want to call it, the root. Look what it says in here. Joseph upheld the covenant by resisting the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife, right? And he is therefore called righteous in rabbinic literature because of what he did. Now, because of his sexual purity, Joseph attained the level of yesot in Hebrew, which is foundation. Okay? Follow me with this if you can. Yesot is known as righteous based on Proverbs 10.25. What does it say in Proverbs 10.25? It says, Va zadik yesot olam. The verse which literally means the righteous one is an everlasting foundation. It's understood as the righteous one is the foundation of the world. Well, yeah. Because Yosef is also known in rabbinic literature as the Mashiach, who is also known as the Yasot, the foundation, who created everything. This is really, really powerful. Look, the righteous who follow, listen to what they say, the righteous who follow the example of Joseph participate in Yasot and attain the world that is coming. In other words, the righteous who follow his example. What did Paul say? Imitate me as I imitate Mashiach. This is probably the gospel's being revealed here, folks. Joseph, the foundation. Look, John 1.45, the gospel says this. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him 
of whom Moses in the, in, the, in the law and also the prophets wrote. Notice what he said. We have found the one that Moses wrote about. His name is Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of who? It's interesting that in rabbinic literature, he's known as the son of Joseph. But literally, his father here on earth was called Joseph. I mean, what are the odds? His father, he was known as son of Joseph. And that title, son of Joseph, in rabbinic literature, comes back to the Mashiach. Very, very interesting. So look, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me just as I also imitate the Messiah. So what do we have up to this point, family? Okay. We understand that the deeds are important. The deeds that we do in accordance to God's Torah are important for the world to come. Why? But not just for the world to come. Because when we talk about the world to come, we're talking about the restoration of this world. How many of us want a better world? Hopefully all of you, right? Okay. What do we do about it? See, this is where the parasha Noah is beginning right now to, to teach us. That the, the remedy, we need Joseph. But not just Joseph. We need the deeds of Joseph. We need to walk in the deeds of Joseph. Who is known as the Messiah as well. So now Noah was commanded to build an ark. Now that we understand that this generation that is talking about is his deeds. Which is why he was actually what? Accredited to righteousness. Kind of like Abraham, right? Now he not only is righteous but he has earned the right to build this ark now we're going to focus in the remainder of the teaching today with this ark because this is important concerning us today in this world look genesis 6 14 make yourself an ark of gopher wood make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch it says in hebrew it says What's really amazing about this, this opening in here, it says, What is ase in Hebrew? You have to do deeds. Good. It means doing something. It's from the Hebrew word asa. But it doesn't just say asa. It says ase lecha. For yourself. This is the same terminology in Hebrew that we're going to read next week for who? Abraham. When he says to Abraham, Lech, Lecha, for yourself. In other words, this deed that he's saying, or this ark that he's going to build, he said, It's not just for Hashem. He said, I need you to build this for yourself. Look, this is what gets really interesting, okay? Because keep in mind that Hashem is about to destroy all humanity. We're talking about doomsday here. Okay, this parasha is very prophetic of what's to come in the future. I want you to keep that in mind. Prophetic on what's to come in the future. You know, most of you guys love those movies about the rapture. And probably all of you have seen it. You know, it's so interesting that they make movies out of it. You know, doomsday, you know, everything's falling, the skies and... Ooh, how exciting. But in the parasha Noah, it actually shares insight and in what's going to happen in the future. See, what we see in here is a mirror of what's going to happen. Why? Because Isaiah says that he reveals the end from when? From the beginning. Okay? So we're going to see here that what awaits the world 
It's total destruction coming here soon. Total destruction coming next on your local theaters. 3D, you'll be able to experience and see it, by the way. No glasses needed. Admission is free. But an interesting, folks, that it's through here that we understand what our position is going to be. Why? Because if we can understand what's going to happen, what, 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 what does that tell us today? How to prepare for it. See, Shabbat is all about preparation. The kingdom of Hashem is all about preparation. Look, it says, What is the word ark in here? Hebrew word used in here for ark, it is the Hebrew word tevat. This is a very interesting word, by the way, because it is only used one more time in the entire Tanakh. This ark, the word for ark, uh, the, the Hebrew words that are used for ark in other sections, but only twice this one is used. This prompted the sages to, to really look into this. So let's move on in here. We'll share it. The word ark, it is the word teva, and means a chest and ark. Now, Hazal says that the ark, the teva, unlike the movies, the ark didn't look that way. Because the teva, that word teva literally means a box. You know, a box. That's it. One big box. That's it. Now, that is something very amazing. I want you to keep that in mind, please, as we go in into this teaching now. Because this box, which has four corners, okay, alludes to, Hazad says also, the Garden of Eden. It's an enclosed box that he tells Noah, I need you to build this box, literally. He didn't say ark. I need you to build this deva, this box. Why? Because I'm going to put you and your family in this box, in this four-corner area that's going to separate you between you and the world, essentially. Listen to where we're going with this. So it's, uh, it's like a, an ark, a chest also. What's in the chest? What the chest houses? The heart also. Keep that in mind. So look. Or Chaim says this. This may have been the reason that Noah could only be saved after the ark. Providing a separate environment for himself. In other words, what Or Chaim is saying is that this square, this box, was a place, if you want to call it. And I didn't go into all the details, but, I, you know, it's right here. It is basically, it is a, a dimension on its own, separate from the world. We can even go on to saying that in this box, the malchut exists. The kingdom of God exists. It is a place where his kingdom abounds. And we're going to see how amazing this is. Watch. So as long as he had been surrounded by his, compa his compatriots without a dividing wall, if that wall didn't exist, he would have been swept away together with them. So the reason why he said build the ark. So the ark, look at this. Question in here is about this ark that I want to ask today, all of you. How could all these animals get along in the ark? Number one. 
Because, you know, we're talking about, you know, animals really, you have predators and you have prey, right? But here's another question. How can Noah and his family, humans, interact with these animals without any danger? Now, the sages of Israel provide an amazing, amazing answer for this, which goes back to the word. Let's go back. The word divine Hebrew. See, Or Chaim says that this box, okay, that separates the environment from the outside to the inside was a means of a protection, right? But how is it that Noah was able to do this inside the ark? The sages of Israel, may their memory be blessed, let me tell you. Look what they point us to. They make this connection in here with Isaiah 11. Look at the connection with Isaiah 11. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leper shall lay down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall grace. The young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. This is con connecting it with the Millennium Kingdom, folks. You see, what Hazal is saying, that when they went into this ark, this box, it was entering to the dimension of the future Millennium Kingdom. That's why the animals got along. That's, it was the presence of the Shekhinah, glory of God, that dwell inside the ark. They provided a protection from the world, but above that, the presence of the mighty one, blessed be he, resided inside that box. Alluding back to the Garden of Eden, but I'm going to take it a step even further. Alluding to the temple, the tabernacle. What was the dimension of the tabernacle? A square. This is powerful, folks. But the amazing thing about this family is that this was here on this earth. His kingdom was inside that ark. And Noah had the ability to enter that kingdom here in this broken world while there was chaos going all the way around. Why I started today with the deeds of Noah is because we cannot experience that kingdom family under no circumstances if we're walking against his Torah. As a matter of fact, what was inside the ark is what's going to bring us more insight. Let me share this with you. But I will establish, Genesis 6:18 says, but I will, now he says, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark. What had to happen first? He had to establish the covenant with him first before he can enter the ark. How many of us want to walk in his kingdom? How many want us to experience his kingdom? How many of us wants to enter the ark today? I will submit to you today that you can enter the ark but you have to have the establishment of his covenant with you first. Let me share this. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go in the ark. You, your sons, your wife and your son's wives and with you. Why all of them? Because Toldot, Noah was the first generation, the first righteous seed. And through that, his family was saved. Are you understanding this?
and connecting it with the Mashiach. That as the second Adam is resurrected, all the rest now the harvest is holy. This is the beautiful connection. You see, because of what he did, Noah and his deeds, prophetical of the Mashiach, now his generation gets to enter into the ark. This is by far family beautiful, hopeful at the best. Look, the Zohar says this concerning that. It says, I will erect my covenant with you. Because remember, he had to do that first before he can enter the ark. You cannot enter the ark. Let me, can I share something with you? And the scriptures literally says that there was Hamas in the world. Y'all know the terrorist group, Hamas? Okay, it's Hamas. But what you don't fail to realize also that it says because lawlessness abound. You know what lawlessness is? Without Torah. Without Torah. Because there was no Torah, folks. You cannot enter into the ark if you live a lifestyle without the Torah. This is important, beloved family. You have to have Torah. Look, I will wreck my covenant with you so that you signify. Listen to what the Zohar says. So that you signify my covenant in the world. It says, then you will enter the, then you will enter the ark. In other words, if he had not embodied the covenant, so the Zohar says, he would not have entered the ark. There was qualifications to enter the ark. Can I share something with you? You probably don't like to hear that, right? Because the old religious is still lingering around all of us. But in Revelation chapter 22, it says that only those who are called Israel and those who keep his commandments are entering the new Jerusalem. Can I share something with you? The new Jerusalem is also an allusion to the ark, the four corner city. Do you understand the importance of this? That as we come to the Mashiach of Israel, folks, if you are denying the deeds, if you are denying his Torah, you are not entering the ark. You will not enter the new Jerusalem, simply put. Oh, but those are words of condemnation. Those are words of truth. Amen. Because guess what? Here, he was going to judge an entire world, folks. And I don't want to hear this nonsense of, oh, Richard, you mean to tell me that most of all of us are going to die? Yeah. Because how many of them got saved here? Eight. You have a problem with the, with the uh, numbers right now? Talk to God about that generation. Only eight got saved. I want you to discuss that with the creator. Tell him, how can you only save eight, creator? Go ahead. Defend yourself. Make the statement because I'm going to be looking behind, way behind you and laughing. Okay? Yes, eight. It's called a remnant. Get used to our family. We're not big numbers. We're a remnant. Okay, look. It says in here, if he had not embodied the covenant, that means that you have to embody this covenant, he will not enter the ark. For only the righteous one unites. Only the righteous one unites with the ark, it says. We have learned a secret, it says in here in the Zohar. Noah needed the ark to unite with it, to sustain the seed of all, as it is written to keep seed alive, right? 7-3, Genesis 7-3. Why did he enter the ark? It's to preserve the seed. Okay. 
to keep the seed alive. So it says in here, who is the ark? Look what they say. The ark of the covenant. They even allude Noah's ark with the ark of the covenant. What was inside the ark of the covenant? The Torah. This is powerful, family. Look. Noah and the ark follow this paradigm. Or paradigm. Look, the Sfordino says, Asalecha tevat. That is what? Go make for yourself an ark. Look what, this, what, look what the Sfordino says in this also. Doing the period allocated to them in order to remind them to do what? Teshuvah. Part of the reason why he commanded them to make this tevah is so the people in the world can repent. Why is the Torah? Because you see, this is interesting. Because the Torah is righteousness, right? God's righteousness. So what happens when you start practicing Torah? And many of you may have experience. If you've been doing this long enough, you probably experienced this. Once they know that you walk in this walk, oh, you mean to tell me that I, you fill in the blank. Because now they feel condemned. See, it's like when you tell them, I don't eat pork anymore because God says so. Okay? But if they eat pork, they're going to feel condemned by you, even though you never condemned them. All you're sharing is that you don't eat pork. Now they turn around and say, uh, what do you mean? That I'm not righteous? Okay, this is what the Torah, this is what he's saying. The ark was meant to bring people to Teshuvah. Because the Torah exposes sin. This is what Rasha talks about in his life. You got to understand this. All of this will make sense. And you never, I promise you, you never will be confused, at least not to the degree that you are today, about Paul's letters. Because Paul is addressing something very prophetic in here. And it goes back to the ark. The ark was built so that people can teshuvah. So that they can have an opportunity to enter into God's kingdom. This is, in a nutshell, the gospel family. Look. This word ark has only been used, like I said, in other scripture reference, in another scripture reference. Anybody want to get a crack? Where else has been used? Moshe, very good crowd. Exodus 2, 1 and 3 says, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as his wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. Keep that word in mind. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she said she hid him three months, it says. Okay. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark and bulrushes for him, dubbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. So Moshe is dealing with a season that he was being persecuted, a season, if you can say, of tribulation, right? Kind of like similar Noah's day. The sages say that Noah was being persecuted because he was building the ark. And what are the odds that only in the story of Moses this word is used in connection with the ark in Noah's day? Look at this, family. I'm going to conclude with this today because I've already been getting warning. i got to finish. Okay? So we're going to conclude here today with something very, very prophetic that I pray that this resonates in your heart. I'm going to conclude with the third arc. I like that. Good answer. His answer, his answer was, huh? Why the third arc? Why the third arc? Because we have Noah's arc, right? Teba? 
we have Moshe's ark, but we have a third ark that's coming. Let's see this, family. The Hebrew word for ark is tevat. And I already told you it's, it's symbolized, interesting, in the Paleo-Hebrew, it's symbolized by a box. Now, the word is a mem, but not just any mem. It's a men sufit, which it is the final letter in the word, okay? It is closed in box, but what does the men represent? In Hebrew, water. Interesting. Now we have a box of a word that represents water. Look at this family. The mem, which is this, not only the men, the men sufit, because it was used in the story of Noah and Moses, it represented a place of safety, but also a rebirth or new birth. <coughs> Guess when I started this teaching, what did I tell you when we started? That the world was chaotic, right? Sin was abounding. And Hashem said, I'm getting rid of all of you rebels. What is this whole, I'm going to get rid of you with all the rebels in the rain? It's new birth. In other words, I'm recreating something new for the earth. Check this out, family. The sages say that the third, they say that there's going to be a third ark, a third teva. But they say that the third one will be hidden. The walls of these four corners of this teva, this ark, is going to be hidden. How so? Let me share this with you. They mention this word teva here, which is a box, right? And they say that the third one is going to be hidden. But guess where? They make the connection for this third box. Where is it? Where is the third box? Look what the connection it is. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. The sages of Israel make this connection formally, not Christians. Jews make this connection. Look what they say. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David over his kingdom. What is the connection with the third ark in this? Let me share with you. You see, this is why Hashem said that Gentiles have been grafted into Israel. Because you would never find this family unless you go back. This is, the, this is the thing. We want food. You have to come back. You have to come back to the brother Judah. Whether you like it or not. Otherwise, you're going to remain where you are. You're only going to grow so much. Why and how is it that Hazan made a connection with Isaiah chapter 9, 6 in connection with the third ark? The mem that is closed. Look. To order it and establish it with judgment and justice from the time forward and even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It says to order it and establish it with judgment. In other words, it's saying that in, the, in Isaiah chapter 9, it's talking about the birth of this son. The government will be on his shoulder, but at the end, he's going to judge. What happened in Noah's story? There was what? Judgment. The mem, the close mem which is the box which connects to the teva in Hebrew. We're going to see it here. Look, in Isaiah chapter 9. So it says, of the increase, in, in verse 7, it says, of the increase of his government 
and peace there will be no end. In Hebrew, that reads like this, right? This is the way it should read in Hebrew. It says, Le, le merbe, le merba, I'm sorry, ha misra ul shalom ein ketz, it says. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. What is limerba? This word right here, I highlighted. That word is increase. Okay? But then it says, ha misra. What is misra? It's from the word dazar. May God bless the czar by keeping them far away from us. Okay? The czar, the government. Okay? But the problem with this in here is that that's not the way it's written in the scroll. Look at the way it's written in the scroll. What is the problem with that in there? We have a men's sufit. Not at the end, but here. That's the box. That's the ark. They say that this led merah, this box is hidden in here, which connects it to the Mashiach. You see, that's not grammatically correct. It's put in there purposely. But how do we discover this? Oh, we have to go to those sages that we say the bunch of traditions. Can we have to go back to them? Because I promise you, you will never figure this out on your own. Okay? Remember, you've been grafted into our family, family. Let's glean from our new family. Look, this mem is connected in here. Now, it goes further than this. Because they say that in the increase of his government, right? And the mem in there that is a close mem, which is the ark. Okay? Which means new birth and safety, right? Who entered the ark in Noah's day? Noah his family who was in the ark during Moses time Moshe so we have two characters Moshe and Noah two prefigures of the Mashiach but one of them shares something more than just the Mashiach because in Noah's day his seed enter also look professor David Flusser shares something very prophetic with this Mem Sufit in there and look what he says according to many sages and scholars who have commented it on Isaiah text above. So believe me, this, is, this has made news everywhere. Okay? There is a belief that the second letter, the close mem, which signifies water, right? And it's close, signifies that the Messiah will be born in a close womb. What do they mean by that? This men Sophie, which is a box, okay? may be speaking of a woman who has not experienced sexual relations her womb is closed because the hymen has not been broken so the mystery seems to be teaching us that the mother of messiah will be a young maiden, a virgin her womb will be closed the letter mem in the ancient paleo hebrew means water what is in a closed womb when a woman is carrying a baby water do you understand that what we see based on that information is that in noah's day there was a birth and they were in the ark that's close mem just like a close womb of a woman this is amazing family you should be tap dancing because i know i was 
this is amazing how can you not see the picture here of the information of the ark and how important this is for us today as believers of Yeshua look the Zohar says this come and see all those offspring of the garden of Eden issue from righteous one only when he enters this ark in a single bond all are treasured away in her afterward issuing similarly here Noah righteous man did not generate offspring becoming fruitful in the world until he entered the ark in which all was gathered and treasured afterwards issuing becoming fruitful in the world enduring on on earth had they not issued from the ark they would not have endured in the world how many times Yeshua talks about enduring in this world okay how do we endure in the world we have to be in the ark this is the lesson we have to be in the ark this is by far so powerful I mean just the connection with the virgin is amazing but even that connects to the ark as well so it says in here issuing from the ark above above issuing from the ark below corresponding to one another from here the world was firmly established not previously and so it is written the earth was corrupt before God the ark is teaching us something amazing family see the thing about it we need to understand is that in Revelation it talks about a birth pain taking place so you did understand this language you need to understand the Hebrew to understand what they're saying you need to understand the people you need to understand the culture otherwise you're gonna recklessly misinterpret scripture like we have look Revelation we're gonna end with this 12 1 and 6 now a great sign appear in the heaven a woman clothed with the Sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars then being with child she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth this is Noah this is Moshe this is Yeshua this is the womb this is the close man with the water around what is she giving birth to righteousness remember when we started the teaching why I cover first the importance of who was going to be inside the ark the seed that is righteous the Torah the ark of the covenant look it says then being with child she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth and another sign appear in heaven behold a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them onto the earth and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born she bore a male child who was to rule all nations this goes back to the close man that we just read in Isaiah chapter 9 it's there what they saying in here is what we just read just in the scriptures just in the Hebrew we saw it the close man which is the child in the womb connecting it to the ark because the ark was a form of birth because it was everything was new again you getting this look she bore a male child who was rule all the nations with a rod of iron and her child was cut up to God and his throne then the woman fled into the wilderness 
where she was placed, where she has a place prepared by God that, that she should feed her there for 1,260 days. Why is the woman going into the wilderness being protected? Because she's inside the ark. The chaos around, just like what happened with Moshe. They were coming to kill him. Just like in the days of Noah, where the wicked men wanted to kill Noah because he was establishing the ark. You have to see this, family. This is extremely important as we have said yes to Yeshua, right? And he is our Messiah. We need to live within the containments of the close men, the ark. What is our job in this season? To build the ark. But not just to build the ark, because remember, what comes out of the ark is the fruit, the peah in Hebrew. The righteous fruit. But what was inside the ark? According to Zohar, the ark of the covenant. It's always about the covenant family. You cannot have an ark of protection if there is no obedience to God. Simply put, you're deceiving yourself and many others by doing that. So my prayer today is that we will all today start building the ark. By the way, the ark is symbolism of the kingdom as well. Remember, you can live in God's kingdom today by entering the ark and producing fruit, not just for you, but for whoever you come across that you can establish and call them your generation. Because the generation of the righteous is his good deeds. Amen. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Do you have a good lunch? Fantastic. Would you say you didn't if you didn't? No, of course not. So this is the Haftorah uh, for the portion Noah. And there's promises in this Haftorah throughout. It's an amazing piece of scripture in Isaiah. And it echoes what we saw in the Torah portion, right? It, they're mirror images. It's, it's a, re, a re-covening, if you will. Uh, we see Israel was going to need to expand, right? Because her children are going to return to her. Her children will have peace. That hasn't happened yet, right? This is all in the future. They're going to be taught by Yehovah himself. Her, Israel is going to be taught by the Creator, by Hashem. Precious gems for windows and for gates, right? The streets, the walls, just amazing. Uh, no weapon formed against you, against Israel, is going to stand. And in righteousness, Israel will be established. And that's what we're going to be looking at here today is, is what does that mean to be established in righteousness? So in verse 54.9, we see the, the covenant making a um, direct connection to our Torah portion. We see the waters of Noah. Uh, For this is like the waters of Noah to me. I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth. So I have sworn that I would not be angry with you, nor rebuke you right so we got to ask the question what do the waters of noah represent is it a happy story right we got cute animals we got giraffes sticking their head out of the top of the ark i'm sure that's how it happened right this is a story about covering right so that's a or is it b a tragic story there's punishment for immoral behavior. We see it happening there in that photo. And then it's about judgment and consequence. Or I got a third option for you. Is it C, a triumph story? We have one man's righteousness saving the world. It's about redemption. It's about salvation. So wh- what do you think? A, B, or C? 
Oh, see, some of you are caught on. It's D. All of the above. It's really about God's covenant, right? That's what we're going to talk about. How do you establish in righteousness? And that's about that God's covenant with Noah and by extension with all of mankind. And God says steadfastness, his faithfulness, right? That's, that's what we're going to be talking about here. All right, so God's covenant. We see it throughout. Um, here's before 9 again. talks about the waters of Noah. And Gen backing up to our Torah portion in Genesis 9, 11, we see that thus I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So you can see Isaiah is just reflecting the promises here in, the, in our portion about Noah. In verse 15, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. That word that's underlined there, remember, is zakar. We've talked about that a bit. And zakar does mean to remember, but it's not like the remembering where I forgot, now I'm remembering again. It's the kind of remembering that you never forget. You're meditating upon, you're, you're thinking about continually, right? We've talked about that before. Um, our creator is remembering his covenant. He's continually meditating upon and, and thinking about the covenant that he has between us and him. In verse 16, the next verse, talks about a rainbow will be in the clouds. It'll be looked on, I will look on it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on earth. The word everlasting is olam. You hear us use that quite a bit, right? It means forever, it means everlasting, continually, if you will. So not only is he remembering, but he's going to continue to remember forever and ever that covenant. Another verse. I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although all the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing that I have done. Even though he knows man's heart's evil, he's still keeping his covenant with his creation, with those who want to be partnered with him. Alright, so in 8.22, back in our Torah portion, we see that the, the covenant comes in a poetic form. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, right? Cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. Beautiful. What we see here, though, is, is the cycle that happens, right? It's, it's more of a, a Hebrew way of thinking, right? It's God's way of thinking. It's not, it's not um, linear, thank you. Um, working its way, through, you know, for one thing to A, B, C, D, E, F, on, on up forever, it, things come around they come around again. Nothing new under the sun, right? The cold and the heat it alludes to winter and summer. They, one, they're opposites, but yet one comes around, finishes, and the next one comes around, and finishes, and the next one comes around. There's a cycle that's happening, right? And so I wanted to take a closer look at this idea of cold and heat, this difference of opposites. How do you know which is which? How do you determine the real thing? What is authentic, right? This has to do with being established in righteousness. So taking a look at hot versus cold. I've mentioned this before, but it bared uh, repeating here today as well. The idea of hot versus cold, one of those is not a real thing. See, you see, when we measure a temperature, we're measuring how much heat there is. Cold is simply a word we apply to something that has a low amount of heat or no heat. Right? We don't measure the cold. We measure the heat. Yeah? So the real thing, the authentic thing, is a heat measurement. It's a measurement of therms or, or Celsius or <laughs> Fahrenheit. Yeah? Let's take a look at light and dark. Again, one of these is not a real thing. You measure light in like lumens. There's other measurements, right? We measure light and dark, similar to cold, is just a word we put to something that has little light or no light. Right? We might say it's dim or 
um, it's getting dark, or now it's dark, now it's pitch black. But all those are word terms that say there's zero light, right? Because the measurement is of the light. So the real thing we're measuring, we're comparing to is the light. Darkness compares to the light. Cold compares to the heat, compares to the real thing. Similar to a, uh, a $20 bill, you go to the store and the lady holds it up or puts that pen across it, right? They have their indicators of whether it's going to be forfeit or a counterfeit or not, right? Those people who are experts in, in real money, they don't look at, they don't study all the counterfeits. They study the real, the real thing. They study the real bill because how many counterfeits are there? If there's three, there's going to be a fourth one tomorrow. If there's four, there's going to be a fifth one. There's millions. They keep going thousands and thousands of counterfeit methods. There's always going to be a new way of counterfeiting the real thing. So they don't even bother with the real thing. They study the real bill and all its intricacies, how it was made, how it's woven, what colors are in there, right? And so then they have, they can know whether a counterfeit comes along because it's not the real thing. They know the real thing so well, they can identify the counterfeit. So why did God choose Noah? Noah was righteous. We found that out this morning. Azadik. Did the people of the time think Noah was doing the right thing? I'd say no. We, didn't, we don't hear about nine and ten person getting on the boat, right? Which is just Noah and his family. There's nobody else made it. Everyone else, they, people had a chance to uh, repent. They saw the boat getting built. They mocked him, right? They thought he was foolish, when he, God says he was a Zadik, right? It's God sense versus common sense. The common sense said, what a stupid old man. God says, he's doing what I told him to do. And because of that, he's going to be saved. So how today, bring it to today, how do we know what righteous is, right? How do you determine the real thing? That idea of cold versus hot is similar here. Good is the real thing, Right? Righteousness is the real thing. That's the measurement by which we can tell whether something is evil. Evil would be things that are where there's less good. Sinful is when there's no righteousness. And Torah. Torah is the true measuring stick, the true rod that by which we measure all things. Right? And so lawlessness is simply a term that means lack of Torah. Right? And so like, like cold, like darkness, lawlessness is just a reflection of a lack of the real thing, a lack of the genuine thing. Torah is the real thing. And taking it even deeper, the Messiah, we don't study the counterfeits. We don't keep our mind looking for all the different anti-Messiahs, all the different counterfeits that could be out there. We want to get to know the Messiah and our Creator as well. So personally, so intent and on a one-to-one -one level that we can then recognize a counterfeit, right? Because we know the real thing. So, Noah, there's Noah right there. He was known as being a righteous man, right? Just like him, it's a splitting image. Um, this little chart here I want to share with you to kind of close. Show, I'll, I'll read it to you, I know it's a little hard to read. So there's, it's about certain reasons that certain commandments cannot be kept today. So for example, yellow is no temple. There's no temple on the, uh, if there's no temple today, there's some commandments that we cannot keep. Uh, brown would be there's no priesthood. So because there's no priesthood currently, there are some of those commandments that can't be kept. And if you're not a priest, those wouldn't apply to you anyway. Um, green would be there's no judges. Uh, today, there's no, there's no uh, Sanhedrin. So because of that, we, there's some things we can't, we can't do. And then red, of course, is some are for men and some are for women. So they wouldn't apply to you if whatever side you are. And then all the blue is because Yeshua abolished them. <laughs> and all of the orange is because they are too difficult. 
And so you can see there's no blue, there's no orange. Because they're not too difficult, we just, what's difficult is the choice that we have to make it, right? And the choice we want to make is to choose righteousness, to choose the genuine thing, right? And that's my prayer for you is that we continue to choose righteousness. So we're going to dig right in, all right? Our opening verse is Matthew 24, 36 through 39. But concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the messengers of the heavens, but my father only. And as the days of Noah, so also shall the coming of the son of Adam be. What was it like at the time of Noah? What was going on during the days of Noah? The next two verses, I kind of rewrote. I just kind of restructured them to change how they were written. Uh, but I didn't change anything in, in what was actually written. So we have, for as they were, as they were in the days before the flood, so also shall they be at the coming of the Son of Man. For they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Does anybody know what they were doing besides Ali and Richard? <laughs> they were. They Guess what? They were partying it up. Yes. Guess what? YOLO! You only live once, right? You might as well party it up, right? If you only live once, then maybe you should be living not for yourself, but for the one who created you. So let's take a look here. Matthew 24 continues in verse 40. It says, Then two shall be in the field, one is taken and the one is left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, one is taken and one is left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your master is coming. Now, in past years, when I've touched on this, I've talked about a little bit about who was left and who was taken. Is it better to be left or to be taken? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll preface by saying it's better to be left behind. Because, because in the beginning, when at the flood, who was left behind? Noah and his three sons and his wife and his three sons' wives. They were left behind. So it's better to be left behind. But I'm not actually teaching on that today. We want to teach on what it means to watch, therefore. The AENT, the Aramaic to English New Testament says, therefore be alert. Okay? That means stay awake. Well, what does it mean to be awake? We're all awake right now, aren't we? We're sitting here. We're, we're not asleep, are we? Okay, well, let's take a look. Matthew continues, he says, I, and, I, and know this, Yeshua says, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched, he would have stayed awake and not allowed his house to be broken into. Because of this, be ready too for the son of a man, son of, son of Adam, is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. So in other words, we also need to stay awake awaiting the return of the Messiah, Yeshua, right? The son of Adam. Okay? Revelation 3.3, Yeshua says, Remember then how you have received and heard, and watch and repent. Okay? So the idea of being awake, it's not just watching, it also has to do with repenting. Okay? It says, If then you do not wake up, I shall come upon you as a thief, and you shall not know at all what hour I come upon you. In other words, if you're not alert, if you're not aware, then guess what? I'm going to come at a time when you don't expect. I'm not coming at Christmas. Amen. <laughs> I'm not coming at Easter, he says. But if you're not awake, if you're not watching, you'll not know when he's coming. 
Mark thirteen thirty two through thirty three plus thirty five and thirty seven all come into agreement. I skipped some verses because we don't need it all. But concerning that day, that day meaning the day that he's returned, and the hour, no one knows, not even the messengers in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Well, here we also see an example of the fact that though Yeshua was God Himself incarnate, He didn't have everything. He was just the arm of Hashem coming to do the will of Hashem. He wasn't given all information that Hashem has. He says, take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Watch, therefore, and what I say to you, I say to all. Watch. Well, you can't watch if you're not awake. Luke 21, 34, and 36, a complete agreement. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down by gluttony and drunkenness, worries of this life. Well, isn't that what happened in the times before the flood? Wasn't there gluttony and drunkenness and revelry and partying and YOLO, right? For it shall come as a snare on all those dwelling on the face of the earth. Watch then at all times and pray that you be counted worthy to escape all that is about to take place and to stand before the son of Adam. Now, that idea before, uh, about standing before him is standing before him with confidence because all are going to stand before him and, and come to judgment. But judgment isn't going to be against you if you can stand in confidence before him. Isaiah 52.1 says, Awake! Awake! Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the set-apart city. Awake! Awake! Guess what? They've been given the word. They understand Torah. They walk in it. But they're not all awake. There are many who are still sleeping. Though they walk in the righteousness that he's given them, they're still asleep to the full truth of what scripture reveals. That word awake is the word ur. It's H5782. It means to rouse oneself, to awake. It's a primitive root, rather identical with another word spelled the exact same way, also called ur, through the idea of the opening of the eyes. Okay, But figuratively, there's also this idea of raising or stirring oneself up, right? It's to remove the blinders that have been put on. Uh, well, let's get there. Isaiah 42, 5 and 7. I read it last week. Taught on it. It says, Thus says the El Hashem who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, Hashem, have called you in righteousness and I strengthen your hand and guard you and give you for a covenant to a people for a, a light to the nation, speaking of Messiah Yeshua, right? To open blind eyes. Only he can open the eyes of the blind. Israel as the light, because they received Torah, the Torah was given to them, they can display the light, but they can't open the eyes of the blind. They can't bring out the prisoners from prison. Does everybody understand what that is? That's freeing us from the bonds of slavery in our sin, because he's been able to remove the desire to sin from us, so that we're no longer in chains in that prison. He's brought us out of that darkness that is sin, that was in the prison. I had to add this today. In our Siddur, the Ahavat Olam, uh, uh, Olam Siddur, which, which is the love of eternity. In regards to the Matovu, which means how pleasant, there's a footnote. It wrote, 
According to the literal meaning of the text, matovu, it was Balaam who give, gave this prophecy about the house of Israel. The Midrash teaches that this was a time in which each house, each individual in Israel looked inside his own house instead of the house of his neighbor, as Rashi explains. The job of Balaam was to put the ayin hara, the stingy or evil eye, on Israel. We all understand that, right? We, we've all read the, the, bo- the, the book of Numbers, and we, uh, we've, we've done this portion for a number, of t- a, different, a number of times. So the job of Balaam was to curse to put that stingy eye, to make them looking up, look upon one another and be, you know, have that have that evil within them, to curse them. But he was not successful because the house of Israel was in order according to the secrets of Torah. Excuse me. According to the secrets of Torah, Balaam saw the status of Israel in the heavens. So when he looked upon Israel, he saw their status as heaven looked upon them. And as heaven looked upon them, they were glorified. When he saw Israel's irrevocable covenant with God, he saw the full Shekinah over the house of Israel. Goes on to say this is consistent with the statement in Romans 11.29 by Rav Shaul that says, For God's free gifts and his calling are irrevocable. No one can remove his calling from you. He's not even going to recall it. The focus of the prayer is that the, the, that the future state of the house of Israel will be filled with Shekinah. We read in Shabbat 30b, So I commanded joy. That is the joy of a mitzvah. Now this harkens back to the times before the flood. Because as it was in the days of Noah, guess what? The praise of joy mentioned here is to teach us that the Shekinah rests upon an individual. Not from an atmosphere of sadness. Not from an atmosphere of laziness or from an atmosphere of laughter or an atmosphere of frivolity, nor from an atmosphere of idle conversation, nor from an atmosphere of idle chatter, but rather from an atmosphere imbued with the joy of mitzvah. The revelry that was going on in the days of Noah prior to the flood that brought on the flood was not an atmosphere imbued with the joy of mitzvah. Our focus through the Matovu is to have joy and to remember the future status of the house of Israel in the heavens. Uh, therefore, we're seeing the Shekinah glory. Well, we can't see the Shekinah glory that is on the, the house of Israel if we're not awake. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 10 says, Now, brothers, as to the times and the seasons, you don't, do not need to be written. What does he mean there? The times and the seasons. You know about Passover and unleavened bread, and Shavuot, and Yom Teruah, and Yom Kippur, Sukkot. We know of these things. We celebrate these things. We observe these feasts. So he doesn't need to write to us about them. However, for you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of Hashem comes as a thief in the night. But guess what? He's going to come during the middle of one of these feasts. For when they say peace and safety, then suddenly destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Guess what? That's what was happening in the days of Noah prior to the flood. They were having a good time, peace and safety, and then all of a sudden destruction came upon them. There was nothing they could do. You brothers are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. That means that we should be expecting during the right season for his return. We are awake to when he's going to be coming. We don't know the day. We don't know the year that it's going to happen, but we certainly know the season. 
For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then we should not sleep as others do, but we should watch and be sober. Those words sleep and watch and be sober. Well, sleep, kathudo, uh, literally to sleep, but metaphorically to yield to sloth and sin and be indifferent to one's salvation. Now, of course, that came out of one of the Blue Letter Bible or Bible Hub. Indifferent to one's salvation. What does that mean? Well, we have a different understanding of what salvation is. But basically, the idea is that, well, it doesn't matter that I'm saved. I can continue doing what I was doing before I was saved. I can still continue to be obedient to my former master, even though I have a new master. Well, guess what? The new master is going to let you go if you keep on doing that. He's not going to let you back in his house. We should not sleep as others do. We should watch and be sober. Those two words, watch and be sober. The word watch, Gregorio, literally to stay awake, but also figuratively to be, to be vigilant, to be responsible, watchful. Wherein sleep is often equivalent to die, so Gregorio means to live, to be alive. Well, guess what? Richard talked today about being reborn. Have you been reborn? Are you alive in Torah and Torah in, Mesh- in Messiah Yeshua? That word uh, for sober is nepho. It's properly to be sober, not drunk, not intoxicated, but it, figuratively it's free from illusion. That means that we're not believing the falsehood that is out there that is being taught and preached and put upon us. From the intoxicating influences of sin, therefore the impact of selfish passion, greed, etc., so Thessalonians continued, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. They're, they do it all in the darkness. But we who are of the day should be sober, putting on the breastplate of belief and love, and as a helmet, the expectation of deliverance. Because Elohim did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain deliverance through our master, Yeshua Messiah, who died for us so that we, whether awake or sleep, should live together with him. We need to be awake his word. We need to be awake to his return. But that means that we need to stay in his, in his word. We need to be continually filling ourselves with it. And we need to do our best to avoid too much revelry with the outside world. We have a wonderful mishpacha here. And there is nothing that I desire more than to hang out with the mishpacha over those in the world. I have family members that I love that are still in the world that are not in this faith, I'd rather hang out with my family here. Genesis 9, 20 and 21 says, Noah, a man of the soil, became, began and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. He was drunk. He wasn't watchful. He wasn't sober. And he allowed himself to go back to his old ways. It's very unfortunate because it allowed certain things to happen in his life. We're not going to get into that. Uh, Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is loose behavior. Be filled with the Spirit. Guess what happens when you're filled with the Spirit? It leads to righteousness. You and I are here because of righteousness, because the Spirit has brought us here. Blessed be His name. Anybody counting? Baruch Hashem. (laughs) Ephesians 6.10 and 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. How are you going to stand against the wiles? You need to stay in the word. You need to be watchful. You need to be absorbing. 
And you got to remember that our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? They're warring against us. So our, our way of fighting is through prayer, meditation of the word, and to continue to walk in the righteousness. So that when we do stand before him in that day, we can stand firm knowing that we have stuck to the way. We've not veered to the right or to the left. The right or to the left. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything, stand firm. Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. We have to remember that faith is not just something that is, is metaphorical, it's active. I show you my faith by my deeds. So, stay, stick to the faith. Hold to it. Take the shield of uh, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Revelation, Yeshua says that he will fight them with the, the double-edged sword in his mouth, which is his tongue, which are the words that he will use to slay them. So my prayer for each and every one of us is to continue to walk in his ways so that we stay awake and so that we are ready and prepared for his return. Hallelujah. Shalom. Bless you, Father. Thank you for being a part of our teaching. Be sure to visit our website at www.thefoundationoftheword.org for additional resources and to help us financially. It is our hope and desire that what we teach will help you in your walk with Hashem Elohim, that we bring more souls into His kingdom. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.